from the Center for European Reform. This is the CEA podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Hello and welcome to the CER podcast. I'm Octavia Hughes, host of today's episode, and I'm joined by Sandra Tordois, senior economist here at the CER, to discuss fiscal rules. The topic has catapulted back into the topic has catapulted back into newspaper headlines after the German government issued a non-paper with their ideas on what reformed rules should look like. Welcome back to the podcast, Sandra. It's great to be here. So to briefly summarize, the EU's fiscal rules are a set of guidelines used to nudge member states to keep their budget deficit below 3% of GDP and their public debt below 60%. I'd like to start by asking why it's so important that the public finances of member states are largely aligned. Right, well, fiscal rules are key in the EU and particularly the Eurozone because its economies are deeply interwoven. So essentially a debt crisis in one country could easily spread to other countries and disrupt the common market. And since the European Central Bank must impose a single interest rate across the euro area, its role becomes much harder if, say, the state of public finances in different member states varies too much. Back in the 1990s, in the run-up to the euro, there was already an acknowledgement that it was vital to coordinate fiscal impulses across countries to get sort of the overall policy direction of the euro area right. And, and today, most fiscal policy space remains at the national level. So the EU budget is around 1% of EU GDP. If you add in the pandemic recovery fund programming, that percentage is significantly higher until 2026. But governments in the EU tend to be around 40 to 50% of their economy. So, so national fiscal policy is really key. And getting the rules that govern them right is critical for basically the stability of, of Europe as a whole. And the debate today is driven by the fact that the rules were switched off for a few years during the pandemic to allow governments to basically support their economies as much as they needed. And now we have to reimpose some sort of structure and discipline. And the question is, how can that be done without creating a, an unnecessarily fast and painful sort of retrenchment of government spending? to bring down the pandemic debt surge. And if we look today at the debate, the key issue is that if the EU doesn't find a way to reform these rules to reflect today's reality, we will fall back into the old framework from before the pandemic, which has many problems. And so there's some time pressure now on this debate and some time pressure on the European Commission and the member states to figure out how they want to take it forward. So in a policy brief, which will be available on the CER website next week, you describe the EU's fiscal rules as overcomplicated and rigid. Could you explain why? The EU fiscal rules need reform. That's basically consensus. The rules guide government tax and spending based on indicators that essentially underestimate the amount of leeway for governments in economic slums. And then faced with budget consolidation choices spurred on by the rules, European governments have tended to cut investment first because voters notice that less than, let's say, cuts to, to social programs. And as a result, public investment as a share of the economy was lower in the euro area than in other advanced economies between 2011 and 2019. 
And that trend has only recently gone into reverse. And meanwhile, of course, investments in, in the green transition, digitalization and European defense are staggering and much higher than we even thought a few years ago. The other problem, let's say, let's say for balance, and I think that's fair, is that while the UAS average public debt level is not that different from, say, the US, there is a lot of divergence and some countries have really significant debt, debt levels that they need to put on a downward path. So this is basically the, the sort of overall issue with the rules that they've not been very good at giving government space in recessions, but they've also been pretty poor at bringing debt levels down in economically more booming times. That's really interesting. So as you mentioned earlier, the European Commission suspended its fiscal rules during the pandemic. And then in November of 2022, a slightly different set of rules was proposed. How did these rules differ? And what was the reaction of member states? A slightly different set is probably an understatement. I, I think it was in many respects what the commission proposed in November was, was really a, a sea change. So instead of having hard-coded rules that apply to all member states, they proposed to have multi-year debt reduction plans individually negotiated between the commission and the member states with the idea that that would enable countries to take ownerships of their own fiscal trajectory. Um, countries would submit four-year fiscal plans and can get up to three years extra if they front load key reforms or investments before their debt levels must start declining. So the proposal had some flaws, but it offered a way of reconciling debt sustainability as the primary objective of the rules with stabilization during recessions and room for public investment and growth-enhancing reforms. The key issue is that making this kind of call for the commission is extremely vulnerable to abuse, or some member states worry that they'll be too soft, because four plus three years is a long time. The assumptions that you would make in assessing these fiscal plans are up for debate, of course, and so that's sort of the politics around it. And particularly, Germany doesn't sufficiently trust the commission to be tough on high debt countries. And so in a new non-paper that they issued last week, which in a sense is a counter-proposal to the commission, they signal that they want to go back to inflexible, codified, numerical debt reduction targets that apply to medium and high debt countries. And, and my fear is a bit that we've been here before. If we set the rules too strictly, that will once again tempt the commission to weaken enforcement because some member states will struggle to comply with it, particularly in recessions. And that may actually kind of re resuscitate the old system where tensions over time were increasingly solved by making the system very complex and opaque to give countries a little bit of extra space. So could you go into a little more detail as to what the German government is proposing and what your read on that is? Sure. So basically, Germany seeks to limit Brussels scope on these national debt reduction plans. Um, they suggest that countries with high debts, uh, think of Italy, for example, could cut the debt ratio by one percentage point a year, and those with lower but still sizable debts by half a percentage point a year. That would also mean potentially letting go of this four plus seven years, which the commission proposal had foreseen, until debt levels start going down. And this non-paper has been met with really strong reactions from economists who fear the mistakes of the euro crisis could be repeated if the proposal is implemented very strictly. Now, I have a slightly more nuanced reading because I'm just not sure we could have expected more politically from Berlin. Germany had simply not yet bought into the reform direction and doesn't trust the commission enough. So there will have to be some political compromise. And the non-paper is a government-wide paper negotiated between the Social Democrats of Chancellor Olaf Scholz, the Free Democrats of German Finance Minister Christian Lindner, 
and the Greens of Vice Chancellor Robert Habeck. And in a way, it shows the paper's language. It sounds very hawkish, but it, it has openings in many areas. So it's a sort of signal to, to Brussels and the rest of Europe that Berlin is willing to talk. Now, at home, it will undoubtedly be sold as Germany tells the commission to tighten up the rules. But under the hood, it's not outlandishly hawkish. So, for example, the benchmarks they propose are a far cry from the current rules, which require a country to reduce its debt to GDP ratio by 120th the distance to the 60%. So Italy is far over 130%. And so it would have to cut it in half over 20 years, which is pretty extreme. And Germany is no longer holding on to that. They also now buy into the logic of having a so-called expenditure rule in which government expenditures grow more slowly than the economy as a whole, which is a way to sort of bring debt levels down very gradually. So there are some openings in there. The key question is how strict they will be and whether this expenditure rule that I just mentioned is the leading criterion during the implementation phase in which countries get to work on, on making their fiscal plans work. And this was, this was basically a subject of debate. And so the key question is whether this proposal will end up being very austere and exacerbate recessions is a matter of how it will be taken forward and what the sort of compromise will be between Germany and the other member states and the commission if it comes. My, my own concern is twofold. I don't think there's anything wrong with a sort of common methodology, but fixing rules for all countries, if you do so overly tightly, would discourage the commission probably from enforcing them, as has happened in the past. And the other real problem is that codification of rules doesn't work so well if they're only updated sporadically. And this we've seen over the past 20 years because the Eurozone has lurched from recession in the early 2000s to a period of stable growth, to disinflation and low growth after the Euro crisis to recently a high phase of inflation. So we're a bit at an impasse. The commission probably needs quite a bit of discretion to apply the rules in a way that keeps pace with these economic developments, but it also cannot ask Germany to blindly trust it, right, to be strict enough. And so that's why in the paper, we look a bit at a third way to solve the dilemma and make a number of proposals to strengthen EU institutions and give them more ways to enforce rule compliance rather than codifying the rules. So if we look at the rules as a whole, a recent study on numerical compliance with the EU fiscal rules found that quantitative standards were only met in half of the cases. Why is this figure so low? After the global financial crisis, COVID, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, as well as long-term aging pressures, spending has been rising across the advanced economies, not just in Europe. So if you look at the EU or the Eurozone as a whole again, the debt levels are not too far off from the US or the UK. The issue for Europe is that there are large differences between countries, in part because they have different spending priorities, and that makes some sense. Different party politics, different electoral cycles, different economic philosophies maybe even. But at the same time, we have this common market and the currency union, which require a degree of fiscal harmonization. And so I think that sort of tension between democratic politics across many different member states and the need for common rules and common safeguards is fundamentally the reason why there's been so much rule breaking. Another reason you may say is because the rules themselves have not been ideal, as we just discussed. But the problem for the EU is it cannot easily force member states to follow the rules, unlike the US or Germany or Switzerland, whose federal governments have tools to impose hard debt breaks on regional governments. Fiscal policy is still mostly in the hands of EU member states. 
So EU institutions need a good reason to intervene, and the Commission ultimately cannot act alone. It will need the approval of the Council of Ministers to sanction a member state. There have been prior attempts to improve enforcement. For example, after the euro crisis, the rules framework and how it's applied was reformed to insulate the Commission from political pressure from member states. But the result was a bit disappointing. So essentially, member states, instead of blocking enforcement action in the Council of Ministers, they lobbied the Commission for a laxer treatment. For example, in 2016, the Commission moved to enforce against Spain and Portugal after they breached the rules and did not rein in their budgets. But Portugal and Spain, supported by other member states, including of all, of all Germany, went ahead and sort of pressed the Commission to set the amount for the fine at zero. And a, a very famous gaffe from European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker at the time was very telling because he, he defended giving a bit of leeway to France in 2016, simply because it's France. That was the quote. And so it shows you a bit that this is fundamentally a very political issue and a political process. And I would say we shouldn't be too afraid of that. That's, that's normal in a, in a democracy. What we should be afraid of is having, again, a set of rules that sounds very strict on paper, but is sort of eroded from within. And that's, that's what we saw since 2015, when the Commission moved to interpret the rules framework more loosely and sort of hid behind complex formulas and quote-unquote interpretation of the framework. And that really kind of blurred the lines on enforcement. It blurred the lines between the Commission and the Council and ultimately was not great for enforcement. And finally, one other lesson from this sort of history of reform attempts is that sanctions are more or less impossible to implement in practice. They were sporadically considered, but never applied other than in this one case where the amount was set at zero. And it shows that the political cost of enforcing sanctions for the European Commission and EU countries on their sovereign EU counterparts is simply too high. If insulating the process from political pressure is impossible and the sanctions haven't really worked in the past, how do you think the rules should be enforced? Exactly. So the question we ask in the policy brief is, what's the best we may expect from European intervention in national fiscal policy? Again, with the view to solve this dilemma between numerical fiscal rules or giving the Commission more discretion. And the overall idea is to give EU institutions more instruments and incentives to nudge member states to follow the rules. And there are a number of ways in which this could be done. So, for example, member states and the Commission should agree that a portion of future EU funds will be used as incentives for good fiscal behavior. The new framework that the Commission foresaw tries to replicate the logic of this EU pandemic recovery fund by bilaterally negotiating with countries rather than seeking to constrain them solely through rules. But the recovery fund will run out in 2026, and they haven't really proposed any new money to replicate that structure for, for the fiscal governance framework. But the EU will launch a new long-term budget in 2027, so its payouts could be conditional on following the rules, or some of the funds could be set aside as rewards for high-debt countries running sustainable policies. Another area that could be explored is is for fiscal policy enforcement to closely align with national electoral cycles. The four and plus three years is quite long, but it also doesn't really work that well politically because a government that has, let's say, two or three years left in office has little incentive to comply with, with the plan, only such that the commission will give it extra leeway or some extra EU money uh, three years later, right? So it makes more sense to have shorter timelines that align with the election cycle of countries. 
And another area where it would probably help is if the new framework focuses on preventing really dangerous physical policy errors or mistakes rather than seeking to fine-tune policy. So there should be a bit of a threshold before the commission starts investigating. For example, a sort of fiscal balance that makes a falling debt ratio probable and likely for the most indebted EU countries. And then the commission can really focus on cases where policies are in the making that would lead to a spiraling debt cycle. And finally, this contentious issue of what to do with the sanctions. There we say, why don't we rethink of them as signaling devices? Because the sanctions were never applied, but standoffs between Brussels and a national capital over fiscal policy has in the past fed into higher borrowing costs. So the bond markets take notice. And so having a number of sanctions linked to enforcement actions could help in a sense of functioning as a sort of sliding scale of warning signals, even if the fines will never be imposed in practice. Okay, that's really interesting. And I think that's all we have time for. So thank you, Sander, for joining me for this week's CER podcast and for all your helpful insights. And thank you also to our listeners at home. If you'd like to stay informed on all things Europe, subscribe to the CER wherever you get your podcasts. And for more analysis on the EU's fiscal rules, keep your eyes peeled for Sander's policy brief, which will be published next week. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.